You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Danny Fingeroth, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Venom, Episode 3, The Madness. And this covers three months from 1994 of Venom's ongoing miniseries. This one's titled, of course, like I just said, The Madness. And with me for this episode is Mark McGraw. How are you doing, Mark? Oh, just fine. Thanks for asking, Curtis. Well, I'm glad that you're part of the show here. You've been um, a, a longtime listener, and it's cool to always get people who um, have been you know, following the show to be on the show. So uh, we're going to talk about Venom. What's your association with this character? Oh, I'm, uh, I just turned 47 in January, so um, when Venom first came out, I was actually reading the comic, The Amazing Spider-Man, and I followed him right into Lethal Protector, and around that time in the 90s, I was actually working at a little comic book store here in Labrador. So by the time The Madness and Funeral Prior and all those came out, I was actually selling them over the counter to uh, people uh, who were just going crazy for this stuff back then. He was a very, very popular character. So these, these miniseries sold really well? They did at first. And when I was doing a bit of research on this, uh, uh, on some website, they were saying that uh, most of the first issues and sometimes the second and sometimes even like the third and whatever uh, placed in the top 500 comics of the year Wow! for the year that they sold, which uh, surprised me a little because there was a lot of material in the nineties and it was comics Palooza. Yeah. Well, Venom was like a surefire guaranteed hit. Whenever you put them in a book, people, people ate it up. One thing that really kind of became clear when I was researching this too, was uh, just like Deadpool, Venom really needs a Venom companion uh, Mm. trade to go along with the Venom uh, trades that they've been releasing. The trades are great because you can follow them chronologically, but uh, you don't get the Iron Man issues that he was in or the Daredevil or the Darkhawk or uh, Nightwatch, uh, who isn't Spawn, (laughs) (laughs) and Silver Sable and the Wild Pack. Now, some of these issues are collected in the Omnibus. Yeah, and the Venom, Venomnibus or Venomnibus, whatever it's called. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they did that too with Deadpool, but then when they released the uh, complete Deadpools, they also released the companions to go alongside of them. Yeah, that's true. Now, I'm not too broken up about that because I'm collecting all of these epic collections, and most of those issues are going to be in there. Of course, not Nightwatch. I don't know if we'll ever get a, a Nightwatch complete collection or anything like that. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Um, but I, I like these Venom trades. So this miniseries, The Madness, is found in the the trade called Venom, The Enemy Within. It's the second of three miniseries that that one collects. And this miniseries is by Anne Nocenti and Kelly Jones. 
now. Anne Nascenti, of course, know as uh, from her long run on Daredevil, but I'm not familiar with Kelly Jones. Do you know Kelly Jones? Yeah, Kelly Jones around this time was uh, doing all the covers for the Batman uh, Night Quest. He wasn't drawing the interiors, but he was doing all the covers. Okay, yeah. almost all of them. And then uh, later on, he went to do a Dead Man miniseries with uh, Mike Barron, I believe. And um, that's the one where Dead Man is, it looks very emaciated. Right. And I think Kelly Jones also did some work on Sandman. Yep, Sandman. And later on, he did do uh, a lengthy run on Batman. And there were a lot of like the Spectre and uh, other supernatural characters mm-hmm. that made appearances. Now, this style, I think, really, really suits the supernatural. Like, I, I there's, it makes, it comes to no surprise that you mention all of these supernatural characters. Uh, Kelly Jones has this great kind of dark Gothic style that uh, that was very popular in the '90s. I can totally see um, a lot of the Sandman um, influence there. There's a lot of, I feel like there's a lot of kind of UK style um, stuff that you would find in, in you know, comics in the UK. Yeah, a lot of that influence for sure. And uh, yeah, there's just some great images. I'll, I'll mention some of my favorites as we go through the issues. Um, I don't think that I've ever read The Madness before this. I read a bunch of these miniseries, but this one escaped me. But I'll always remember that this character, this this version of Venom with all of the little heads that spawn on his back and on his shoulders and the extra arms. There was an action figure of that in the nineties. Did you, did you know that? Have you seen that action figure? No, no, I did not know that. Now, yeah, there was a Spider-Man line and I was uh, a broke teenager and I really, really wanted that action figure, but I never was able to get it. And I, uh, I don't even know if you, how easy it is to come by these days, but (laughs) it's a, it's one that I always wanted. Venom action figures always look pretty cool. Well, let's dive into the issues. Why don't you give us a recap of issue number one? Um, as the issue opens, it's called Toxic Kisses, the first issue. And it is uh, when we see, uh, when we catch up with Venom and Eddie, uh, they are in what we later learn is a hypnagogic limbo. And if you're going to be in a limbo, you might as well go hypnagogic. <laughs> right. I looked up hypnagogic uh, and hypnagogia. Okay. And it is a transitional state from wakeness, wakefulness to sleep. Not to be confused with uh, going from sleep to wakefulness, which is a uh, hypno something else <laughs> altogether. Okay. So it has another word, but uh, they mention that later on. So uh, this is how. Uh, we find him, and he is kind of tormented. Mm-hmm. And uh, we later learn that he is perhaps being influenced by another creature. And uh, they continue on with uh, the storyline of these people that he is trying to protect. And one of them is uh, pontificating quite loudly in, in about how he has been wronged by a company of uh that are run by the Scarmore family, or maybe it's Scarmore. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but oh yeah, I guess yeah, it could be Scarmore. But that would have an accent on the over the e, wouldn't it? Or maybe it you wouldn't. Would think. I don't know. 
Eddie is woken up and he uh, goes out to see what what's the what. And uh, this uh, man that we later learn is called Abby Rubin is uh, being beaten on. And he rescues him. And he also meets a, a lawyer who is uh, also looking for Abby because uh, she wants to involve him in a kind of a class action suit. I guess Abby had been working for the Scarmores and uh, a lot of the people working for them had contracted illness uh, due to what we later learn is a kind of a toxic uh, mercury. Hmm. Yeah, it's um, this is something that I think is relevant in current events at the time a lot of the the toxic waste in the oceans and and this kind of thing is in the in the last miniseries we talked about gang warfare and how current that was in the headlines and if i feel like anasenti is is trying to do something similar here is tie into current affairs um with what's going on here corporations that are dumping toxic waste and stuff yeah, and that ties right in with uh, some of the work that she had done on Daredevil where um, uh, the character, I think his name is Bullet, his child was frightened of uh, nuclear war. Mm, nice. And and so like uh, this is right in line with the kind of themes that she likes to introduce in her work. Okay, there we go. Then we check in with one of the Scarmore's workers and uh, kind of over and over again throughout this, we find out that uh, the, the boss of the company wants the lawyer gone but he does he wants plausible deniability <laughs> he says it often and over and over he wants he doesn't want to know <laughs> he just wants her taken care of yeah i felt like they kind of um hammered that point home a little too much it's like in three issues i think he said it five or six times they wanted it so obvious to us that it was a little too obvious the miniseries is is anything if it's it's not subtle it you know it, <laughs> yeah. it can be accused of a lot of things but subtlety isn't one although I, I that isn't to say i didn't enjoy it is it's just uh there's a lot of uh right on the nose stuff so we check in with um the people that uh, this uh, intermediary goes to hire uh turn out to be our old pals uh black tom and the juggernaut nice and that continues the theme with all these miniseries right from the get, uh, the start of there's a guest star in every one. Uh, Venom, Lethal Protector, you can say Spider-Man is the guest star. And in Funeral Pyre, it's the Punisher. And this one, it's Juggernaut. Mm-hmm. And uh, then later on, we get Morbius and Vengeance and some other guys. And in, in later on, they all seem to have Right. Yeah, Wolverine and uh, yeah, yeah, a whole bunch of people. That's true. I guess Juggy is going to go and, and take care of this uh, lawyer for the Scarmores. And uh, we get uh, Beck and uh, Eddie here. They're uh, they're sitting on a bench, and there's some crazy-looking trees around them. I guess they're underground, and he's showing her this community of uh, people who have kind of, uh, now we would say they live off the grid, and uh, the people that he protects. And they're sitting down having a chat, and there are some interesting ideas introduced here, too, uh, about the Venom symbiote of maybe it is not as symbiotic a relationship as as we have been led to believe in the sense that maybe one or the other is benefiting more. Yeah, this was an interesting concept and plays plays through these, these issues and doesn't really carry through to the next miniseries. 
it's one of the things, one of the downsides of having new writers for every every three issues, <laughs> is that they have great ideas. Yeah, even in the miniseries itself, the idea is certainly introduced, but it's not really uh, taken to any resolution or even to its logical conclusion. It's just kind of introduced, and then it just uh, they go on, right? Mm-hmm. But I do like this concept here in this part of the story where uh, you know Eddie starts to have a relationship. And the symbiote tries to, you know, the symbiote grabs, one of the tendrils grabs Beck's hand. And so there's like, it's a weird, it's a very strange relationship that they have. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder how would that even work? <laughs> yeah. Because Eddie, Eddie and the symbiote are one. Mm-hmm. And so you would think, uh, even though Eddie gets certain benefits from being with the symbiote, no doubt, you know, strength and all those things, there is a, a giving up of privacy. Yeah, definitely. And like, you know, the we we know that when the symbiote feels pain, like if it gets burned, then Eddie feels the pain. So if Eddie feels pleasure, then the symbiote is also going to feel that as well. So it's like Eddie has to know that he's sharing all of the his intimate moments as well with this with this other thing. So they uh, they try to talk, or the Beck is trying to talk Abby into joining the lawsuit, and even though he was quite mad and wandering the streets talking about it earlier, he is scared of what happens to people who go up against the Scarmore family, and uh, they have some dialogue about that, and then we get Eddie trying to sleep again, and he's in this uh, hypnagogic limbo, and we can see that there is something that is influencing him, in these in this uh state in between wakefulness and dream it's not exactly subtle and then we get the the scene of the guy from the scarmore who who is hired to dispose of the stuff and he's disposing of it in the river (laughs) he's just dumping barrels of it out and having some internal dialogue with himself about how he hates it but he's not dumping it where his kids are so right and uh perhaps we come to later learn that this stuff uh, has affected Venom in the underground. It has somehow gotten into him. We go to the law office, and uh, Beck is now showing Eddie kind of around her territory, and uh, a giant guy shows up, and we all know who this is. This is Kane Marco. And uh, he makes the mistake of kind of trying to brush Eddie off while he's threatening Beck, and then... uh, Venom comes out, and uh, it, uh, the one thing that you can't say about Kelly Jones' version of Venom, it's not like Tom Lyle and Mark Bagley's. It is, it's a big Venom. Yeah, he's very big. This guy looks like he can go toe-to-toe with the Juggernaut for sure. I made a note in the, in the last episode that I thought Tom Lyle's uh, Venom was a little on the skinny side, and Kelly Jones is completely on the opposite. And as he gets more and more mutated through this story... I feel like there's like shades of Sam Keith's Max in a lot of the ways. Yeah, I I had the same note. Yeah, there are uh, whole panels here that look uh, not like they're uh, aping each other or whatever. I don't know who came first. But in the same school of art. Yeah, yeah, like that that kind of cartoony, but horrific, but still very stylized. Mm Mm-hmm. So Venom and uh, the Juggernaut get into it. Uh, Kane kind of flexes and uh, his clothes just disappear and uh, he's in his Juggernaut uniform and I don't know where he was keeping the helmet. I guess it was on his back. 
but he he puts that on too, and he gives it uh, he gives venom, and uh, the 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 sound effects are also included in the dialogue. He says, "Now I'm gonna womp you one," and the womp is a sound effect. And uh, how about a crack to the gut? <laughs> and he's uh, he's using venom for a bit of a punching bag there. But uh, it's this is an interesting juxtaposition too to the Spider-Man story. Nothing can stop the Juggernaut, where uh, Peter as Spider-Man. It was basically, uh, can he endure the juggernaut? Whereas Venom really seems to be able to, uh, I don't know if they're in the same class, but he can definitely uh, trade punches with the juggernaut. So finally, the the, the fight uh, gets taken outside the apartment, and uh, Venom actually starts to throw back some punches himself, and uh, they end up in the underground, and we are kind of introduced to this toxic goo that uh, Venom ends up dunked in and it seems to have some kind of effect on him. But Juggernaut is left with the impression that he has killed Eddie and there at the end we see uh, Eddie slash Venom mutating. Yeah, great last panel. Um, and it ties into the the very beginning where he's like have has these waking thoughts but now it's now it's this toxic waste that is I guess sentient in some way. The it's um it's liquid mercury that's been mixed with a virus, and now it has it's kind of like a living thing that's oozing into uh, and bonding with the the symbiote as well. So it's kind of a neat neat idea, um, and yeah, we'll see how we'll see where it goes in these next couple of issues. Did you like the start to this miniseries? Yeah, I quite enjoy Anna Senti's writing. I, I really enjoyed her long shot, and, and I enjoyed her stint on Daredevil. And uh, she did some stories for Marvel Comics Presents just prior to this, and they were fairly interesting ideas as well. So this is a continuation of that. It, it's probably the least subtle of all of those, though. <laughs> Pro- probably just because she doesn't have... She has three issues to develop all these ideas, right? Yes, and so she kind of carries over, and we'll see in the next issue, a lot of the themes that she started in that Marvel Comics Presents story. Uh, just a, a note, I really like, and we talked about this here, I really like the internal struggle. One of my complaints about the very first miniseries, Lethal Protector, is that we never got any of Venom's internal monologue or internal thoughts we heard more of Spider-Man's internal thoughts more than anything. And so this issue really plays up the fact that Eddie is at, at odds with what's going on inside of him. And he's trying to figure out, does he give into the control? Does he accept it? And later when Carnage is introduced, we find out that, that Cletus Cassidy fully embraces it. And he's bonded on a way deeper level than Venom ever was. And, uh, and so I think Eddie's having that sort of um, conversation or struggle inside of him right now. For sure, yeah. Uh, do you have any other notes, anything else you want to say about this issue? Um, just that some of the concepts that are introduced and that we get fleshed out later, uh, we find out who some of these entities are. Um, they had appeared before in Marvel Comics Presents, and uh, I'd really, really like for the Daredevil Typhoid's Kiss uh, trade paperback to be made available digitally so that I could catch up on those. Oh yeah, I should have done that too. I uh, didn't even think about it. But yeah, I haven't read those those stories. I just read that the these characters we're going to meet in the next issue are from 
from that story there. Yeah. Um, okay, so why don't we go on to the next issue here? This one's called Paranoia. And in this issue, the virus, throughout the, this issue, the virus is slowly driving Eddie mad. Uh, so now Eddie has three personalities, his own, the symbiote, and the virus. And they're all kind of at war with each other for control to see which one. Um, and, and Eddie at first thinks that this is a good thing. He accepts the virus as giving him some more strength, some more abilities. You know, he grows some extra arms. He's going to do good work with these new enhanced abilities. He's going to save people, which I think is um, an interesting thing, just uh, you know, tying into the whole idea that he's a protector of innocence. But we also have a, a second storyline that's now at play. We, we're introduced to these characters we've mentioned already. They're from Marvel Comics Presents. Uh, the character of Dusk, and the character of Paranoia, and the, uh, another third character, Necromancer. Yeah, that's right. Two of them had appeared before. This is uh, Paranoia's first appearance. Right. And so they are, and this is not really explained. We don't really know why, but they are, they're watching Eddie and sort of speaking to him from another dimension, whatever dimension they're in, um, trying to influence him. they and I don't think we ever really get a good reason why, except they're just kind of doing it for kicks. One thing that made me really scratch my head about this, uh, it was kind of funny, was that I wondered why they didn't use Nightmare. Right. And then as I was researching it, I found out that Paranoia shows up later on in a miniseries by Anne Nascenti in a Nightmare miniseries. Okay. And so maybe she ha she had the same thought. Maybe there was a reason why she couldn't, because that character seems tailor-made for this story. No kidding, hey? It, what, maybe Nightmare was dead, presumed dead at the time or something? It, it could be, or used elsewhere, or so. I, yeah. I have no idea. Or, you know, creators want to create their own characters, and the off chance that they will be a Venom. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. They don't. If why use a pre-existing character if they don't have to? I suppose. I mean, they've already got Venom. They've already got Juggernaut from the ever-popular X books at the time as well. Um, so we don't really need to shove in another character. So in this one, um, Venom decides that he's going to take out the the top brass of this Scar Scarmore company. And so he kills the woman who he believes is the president of the company because she's sitting in the president's chair, but ends up actually being uh, not the right person, which they really downplay. I was quite surprised. I thought Eddie was going to have a big deal when he when he found out that he killed an innocent person, but he just kind of shrugs it off and doesn't pay any attention to it. Yeah, if, if anything, they really kind of uh, pawned that off on the influence of the third party that is now merged with Venom and Eddie. Yeah. And they kind of lay all that at the feet of that entity and, and they're kind of absolved of it. There is some amazing artwork in, in here. I love the page where Eddie is, um, he's talking to Abby and Abby and he's, what does he say here? He said, yeah, the president must die. And Abby says, well, you're speaking metaphorically, right? And Eddie's like, yeah, w w what's that word mean? <laughs> and, and you can see the symbiote kind of going around him and stuff, and it's like this shadow is coming over him. Um, I think it's just really, really well done. Great use of light and dark, um, lots of great shadows. And then and then Eddie, yeah, then he goes to do his thing. 
great nightmare sequence with uh, Spider-Man that is being influenced by paranoia. And then another great scene where Eddie is trying to be intimate with Beck. And man, the symbiote kind of comes out. And this was an awkward scene. It's like she tries to fight him off. And it's like it's almost it almost turns into a rape scene with the symbiote taking over. Um, just some quite frightening drawings and a, just a, a harrowing situation. Yeah, it, it's almost on. It's it's uncomfortable to read for sure. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of like uh, when you're watching a show, and uh, I can remember when I was a kid watching a show, uh, that show with Gary Coleman in it, and there was an episode where this uh, guy that fixes bikes or something tries to drug him and molest him, and it's like this does not belong in this show yeah. at all, and and it was like this does not belong in a Venom comic. The, the scene gets quite not suitable for work. Yeah, it's it's uh it's very dark. There's some amazing artwork here. I love that one splash page where she is just frightened. It's over the top and he's and you can see Eddie's eyes, but his mouth is venom and the tongue's wrapping around her. Yeah, you can see the the look on her face is absolute terror. Yeah. It it's it's really really great. And what this does is show the struggle, the influence of not only the the virus, but also of paranoia and uh, what's the the other guy and, and dusk as they're trying to influence him because this is a guy who we've just spent two miniseries, um, nine issues, pumping up the fact that this guy's a good guy, that Venom is a good guy. The villain that we knew throughout the Spider-Man issues is no longer. This guy's protecting innocent people, but then he goes to this really dark place, and we believe, I think. That this is that Eddie's not in control here, the symbiote or the virus is trying to take take over. Yeah, I believe that's where they were going with this because, like you said earlier, um, there's quite a bit of uh, dialogue about how Eddie's. She thinks Eddie's so articulate, and he was talking about how he was a reporter. Yeah, and then he doesn't he doesn't know the meaning of a word when he's talking to her. Yeah, exactly. And it seems like he's he's there less and everything else is there more. But it's getting crowded in there. <laughs> it is. The only reason it doesn't it, that nothing happens is that Juggernaut comes back for round 2 to try and kidnap Beck and they have a big fight again. And um there's a point here where Eddie says something like I need to go check back with Ruben. And I'm like, "Who is Ruben?" And Ruben is the last name of Abby. Abby Ruben is the uh, African-American guy that uh, we met at the beginning of the other issue. Beck, and I guess her other name we find out in the, the last issue, her last name is Underwood, is the woman. And let's, so they're throwing yep. around these names. Abby, which is kind of a, it could be male or female name. And Beck, which is, I don't it gender neutral as well. And Ruben, and like... I for for only having a three issue miniseries, I feel like they should have picked some better names and been a little bit more consistent how they were calling people. Yeah, I had to flip back and forth to keep it all straight for sure. Okay, well let's see here. I I really liked this climax with the fight with Juggernaut. Um, this was a good issue. I I felt like even with how dark it got right in the middle, they're really displaying how much Venom is at war with himself. 
and with these other things there's the the artwork i think is better in this issue than we saw in the first issue and i'm not sure exactly why but i think kelly jones just pushes himself more and there's a lot more to like in this issue i think yeah i think this is the issue where the art is the best um all you need to do is look at the the spider symbol on the middle of venom in the first issue it was there, but it, it's kind of obscured a lot. In this issue, you can see the costume a lot better, and, and he just kind of, with some of the weird imagery and things, he really kind of lets himself go where he needs to go. Right, yeah. Uh, just a little a little crazy where that uh, dimensional rift opened behind Venom, and he just kind of disappears in the middle of the fight. Oh, yeah, that was weird. I That was actually something I did not like about it. It's like they were in the middle of a fight, and he just gets sucked up into nowhere, and... Juggernaut's like, oh, oh, well, I guess that's normal. <laughs> we'll just leave that the way it is. It seemed really forced in order to get us to the next issue. Yeah. Okay, number three. So number three is uh, Necromancer. And uh, right at the beginning, we see that uh, Venom is in, in the other dimension where the three enemies, uh, entities, Dusk, Paranoia, and Necromancer reside or where they have influence. And there is a mention made of the Marvel Comics Presents uh, team-up between, I think it's Typhoid Mary and Ghost Rider. Right. And uh, just that the dude on the bike here, he has uh, he has met Ghost Rider and he's borrowing the, uh, some of his imagery to fight Venom. Yeah, I totally thought that this was, that um, they're like, well, why did they make him look so much like Ghost Rider? But then they added the dialogues like, oh, I guess that's intentional. <laughs> I have to accept it now. Yep. And so Venom uh, meets Paranoia, and there's some great imagery there with the bats and things, some great Kelly Jones artwork. And mm-hmm. then we check in with uh, Beck and uh, Juggernaut, and, and they're kind of making the best of a bad situation. She's kidnapped, but she uh, seems to be a person that has infinite compassion. She has a lot of sympathy for Eddie, even though things got really weird with him last issue when they were kissing and she seems to have a lot of sympathy for Kane Marco here as well. Unless it's a play in order to get Juggernaut's defenses down. Yeah, and that could be. I just seem to think that she's one of those people who really seems to probably why she is a lawyer for the downtrodden in the first place. Right. Yeah, that's true. So they turn on the TV, of course, and uh, it's about how the cleaning lady was killed, and and they mention Beck by name and how maybe it's it's her fault and these kinds of frivolous lawsuits, and and she is very upset by this, and then we go back to the fight between Venom and this uh, entity, and maybe because of the influence of the virus, he is able to uh, do some crazy transformations there. And uh, he uh, makes some additions to uh, his suit there, and uh, the fight gets kind of crazy. And I think they make a dig at uh, Doomsday at one point when he's talking about his bone spurs that he has made on his costume. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can see that. And that storyline, would Superman would be in funeral for a friend as, as this is actually happening, so that wouldn't have been too long in the past. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, even the way that Kelly draws Venom, just how bulky he is with the size. Yeah, very Doomsday-ish, I guess. Interesting. So uh, I don't know if they uh, maybe they didn't like the look of Doomsday and are making a comment, or maybe they're just having a bit of fun, but it, uh, it made me chuckle anyway. Yeah, yeah. That's and good. so the 
the three in one venom, Eddie and Eddie and the cast, Eddie and the symbiote, and uh, the the virus. They kind of make short work of this guy. Uh, he really seems uh, to be turned up to eleven when when the the virus is part of him. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dusk uh, conjures up a, a hallucinatory version of Spider-Man and Wolverine, and uh, Venom kind of uh, does battle with them. Which I'm surprised they didn't feature those guys on the cover of the magazine uh, of this issue. Yeah, that, that would have been great. It probably would have sold a few more copies that way. Yeah. And uh, Venom seems to uh, at least get to a truce with Dusk in the sense that uh, neither one seems that they can win and he ends up back in the real world. And uh, we get a little more Beck and Ruben and uh, she's still there with the juggernauts and uh, Venom uh, finally comes back. And of course we get another fight and it seems that all the neighbors think that a different thing is going on. The guy downstairs is just mad about the noise and the lady next door seems to think (laughs) that, uh, there's some amorous activity going on there, and then the lady upstairs and her cats yeah. seem to think that something else is going on. A nice bit of humor. There's not very much humor in this story, but uh, those little moments are fun. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a good chuckle there in an otherwise very serious storyline. Beck has finally had enough of uh, Kane and Eddie beating on one another, and uh, it seems that Juggernaut's had enough of it too. Uh, maybe just because he figures now he's not going to get paid. Uh, he he leaves uh, via the wall, <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't know how she's gonna uh, how the the deposit is gonna cover all of this <laughs> the damage deposit. But uh, Eddie and Beck have a discussion about their relationship and uh, decide to that it, uh, they're just going to be friends. That hug that they share that's the most Sam Keith pose I think in this book here. Yeah, that looks a lot like the Max. Yeah. Yep. He even has the pointed chin. The pointed chin, the huge arched back, and even less like and the, the teeth. Yeah, the teeth and it's just everything about it, the shadows and stuff. If there was like little frilly bits coming off of, of uh, his costume, then that would have been totally Sam Keith. Venom goes back down to the sewers where he encountered the virus and he returns. I I think he is kind of, uh, because there is a healing property to the Venom symbiote, they have kind of cured themselves of the virus and he returns the virus to the pool where he encountered it in the first place. Yeah, I thought that was kind of weird. That uh, I mean, I I totally understand, you know, when you're sick with a virus, you just kind of, your body heals and the virus eventually goes away. But Mm -hmm. in this instance, he is able to return it. I would have thought that the virus shouldn't be returned anywhere because it seems like it causes more problems than anything. I thought it was hilarious that the virus was treated with such tender, loving care and uh, the the cleaning lady never gets mentioned again. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The the poor old cleaning lady, all she was doing was having a bit of fun sitting in the boss's chair while she was cleaning his office. And she is totally moitered <laughs> just absolutely torn apart by yeah. them and, oh. uh, but no the virus is put back in its little virus pool and very they, gently uh, <laughs> yeah and they even like maybe we'll come back and visit or <laughs> you know it's like oh my yeah yeah kind of a weird ending and then yeah the great splash page at the end i really like the last page where he's just like we'll be back looking at the looking at the, the reader so yeah, overall, kind of a rough ending 
where they kind of know no one of the storylines is really wrapped up in a satisfying way. I don't think, at least. There's a lot of things introduced, but uh, very, very few uh, are brought to any kind of a logical... I, I don't even know if you want them concluded, but even like really taken out for a decent run. There are a lot of things thrown at the wall, though, and, and uh, that's typical of uh, and Nacinti's writing. I was a big fan of her work on Daredevil, and I'm sure you'll be discussing it in uh, a touch of typhoid epic yeah, collection when you definitely. get there. Yep. But uh, I was a big fan of that, and there is a lot of that. And at this time for Vertigo, she was writing Kid Eternity. I think it was Neil Gaiman did the miniseries, and then she did the ongoing. Right. It last it lasted about eighteen issues, and I was reading that back in the day, and I can tell you there is some strange stuff in that Kid Eternity. <laughs> Okay, yeah. Uh, she was doing that with, I think it was Sean Phillips. Oh, cool. That'd be good. Uh, I think. I could be wrong on that, but... Uh, and and there is some some strange stuff. This is kind of... Uh, this is kind of middle of the road compared to Kid Eternity is, is some wild and woolly stuff in there. Yeah. But she must have done some uh, psychology courses or had an interest in it because all of her work, there are all these psychological ideas thrown in there. And I like that she brought that to her work. Yeah, that's very cool. It, that those are the themes that come up over and over again with her work, and it definitely is. That's the most compelling part of this story. The rest of it is, I, I mean, the 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 whole toxic waste thing is kind of a non-issue. It doesn't really. It's just a reason for Venom to get together with this girl. The plot line is wrapped up um, over a news report. Like we don't get any sort of resolution because Venom's not involved in it at all. The only thing he does is kill the president of the, the company or who he thinks is the president of the company and that's it. I mean, I guess the fight with Juggernaut is because of the, the that company. Yeah, well, the, he's their agent. I guess uh, we kind of glossed over a little bit how the intermediary for the company, the guy that the boss is always telling to do this and do that, he, he finally turns on them. He goes informant and turns right. them in, and that's how th that's resolved. Yeah, that's right. He kind of has this eternal internal dialogue throughout that it's bothering him more and more, and he can see how the boss's plausible de deniability, well, there's only one person who's going to be left to blame, and it's going to be him. And uh, it gets to yeah. him so much that uh, they resolve it by having him turn uh, Scarmore over to the, the authorities. He, he turns informant. Venom has nothing to do with it. No, no. It's, he's almost uh, like Indiana Jones in the Raiders of the Lost Ark from that Big Bang Theory episode where they right. say he's kind of... <laughs> if you take him out... Kind of, <laughs> yeah, the story would pretty much resolve itself the same way, yeah. It would, yeah. Very strange. So overall... How would you place this um, amongst the other Venom miniseries that you've read? It's definitely the oddest one. Yeah. It seemed like, and there's no offense meant in this at all, but that Marvel with Venom wanted a pretty meat and potatoes action hero. Yeah. And uh, Anna Sinti, as is her wont, kind of took this to a more uh, thoughtful place as, as much as she could in the three issues. And... Uh, I think Marvel would have maybe maybe not, but they 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 were happy to let her do her thing maybe. But uh, I think they would have been just as happy if it had been Venom and Juggernaut punching each other in the face for <laughs> ten pages of every issue for three issues kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was almost that. For the limited space that she had, she did try to inject a lot of 
themes and ideas and things in there. And that's what I always appreciated about her. I mean, Anna Sinti took over Daredevil pretty much right after Born Again, which was Frank Miller's return, triumphant return to, and, and how hard that must have been. Oh, yeah. How do you follow that? And, and, and she really, really took a character, and I don't think, I think a lot of people wouldn't have done it, and she took it and kind of made it her own with Daredevil. And she tried it here with Venom, too. I don't think she wrote any Venom after this. I don't think so either. I think this was her one shot. I kind of wonder if Juggernaut being in this book was an editorial decision because he's very out of place amongst all of the other themes and the other characters who are, that are in this book. I wonder if Anne's original pitch was to have Dusk and Paranoia and Necromancer be way more of a prominent figure in the story. And then the editorial is like, well, we got to have some sort of bigger thing in here because Eddie's not going to be punching these guys. Let's throw the juggernaut in there. He's popular. Yeah, that that definitely tracks because she's she had introduced some of these characters in Marvel Comics Presents and she seems to be continuing on with them here and then she uh, continues on with them in Marvel Comics Presents after and in the Nightmare miniseries yeah. that she does in uh, 94, 95. So I think this is 93 when this is happening. I, I think it, uh, Marvel really had a very clear idea with these series of miniseries kind of idea with Venom that everyone would have a guest star. But <laughs> the funny thing about it is Venom is much more of a draw than most of the guest stars. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Like Sp- Spider-Man and the Punisher are pretty top drawer guest stars, but when you get to like uh, Vengeance, who is not even the draw that Ghost Rider would be, and then Morbius and and Juggernaut, you're, you're kind of, your, your guest stars are not as popular as your star. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder if it was a way for them to make those characters more popular. Well, it's interesting that, that Juggernaut would get the same treatment, although it wasn't as successful that Venom got in that they, they tried to make him into a hero in, uh, later, later on in Marvel uh, continuity. Right. Yeah. When he went over to the Malibu universe, right? Yeah, uh, th- that stuff that you'll never see ever. in an epic collection anytime soon. <laughs> ever, ever. I hope, I hope one day they'll straighten that out. But that is yeah. the one like black hole in Marvel continuity where if, if you're reading uh, digital comics or collected editions where uh, everything just disappears, it's referenced and stuff, but you are never going to see that anytime soon. Yeah, if you listen to my Wolverine The Dying Game episode, uh, Wolverine and Juggernaut have a big fight in one of those issues, and then all of a sudden he's blinked out of existence through a, a through some sort of portal, and you d- no one knows why. There's no mention of it. He but he travels to the the, the Malibu universe at that point, and yeah, I think <laughs> we'll the, never know. Joins joins a team of exiles there. I think is what the title yep, was called. That's right. And there is some good stuff from Malibu. I'd love to see uh, to see some of those rights cleared up and get some reprints taken care of. That'd be cool. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Warren Ellis wrote some of the early issues of uh, the re- the reboot of Ultra Force. Yeah, and Englehart was a big player in a lot of that stuff too. Yeah, yeah. there's some cool stuff there. But anyway, that's for another episode. This has been great, Mark. I thank you for talking about these three issues. And uh, yeah, I think that the people should definitely check out this this miniseries for a lot of the internal struggle. You can stay for some of the artwork. Um, there are a few things that just don't work, though, with the miniseries. 
Yeah, it's a bit clunky, but uh, if you're interested in a thinking man's venom, this is as close as you're going to get <laughs> for a while. Right, exactly. Ah, the 90s. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll have to have you back on another episode in the future sometime, Mark, but I appreciate you joining us for this one. Thanks, Curtis. It's been a blast.